everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If I said it would rain someday in the future, this would be true, but ultimately unhelpful. If I said it would rain tomorrow, this is much more helpful, but it also opens me up to the possibility of being wrong. If I said the rain was tears cried by extraterrestrials, this would be false. This illustration is probably seeming pretty obvious and also pretty strange by this point, but it demonstrates something that we all consider intuitively without actually thinking about it deeply, the verisimilitude of the statements. So um, you and I were talking a couple weeks ago about... Um, you know, wanted to do an episode on truth. Yes, and um, we kind of were looking through some of uh the the podcast history and episodes we've done in the past and stuff. And I said, well, what about verisimilitude? That seems like a you know pretty interesting, and it's along the same lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're we're going for it today. <laughs> so it it's a ten dollar word. Um, what is verisimilitude? It's a ten dollar word that. I think some folks who have been attentive students in high school, perhaps, or college, would recognize, and others. I think gamers probably recognize whether they, all kinds of Venn diagrams I just set up. <laughs> but it is the attempt to do a consistent approximation of the real. I may not be the best definition, but I think it's a start. Because uh, I'm trying to include both the ancient uh, mimetic or mimesis, which is another way of thinking about verisimilitude, trying to create things in art according to life, which Plato and Aristotle talked about. So I'm trying to do that, but also accommodate the where where your opening uh, went so well, which is the logic. So that's where the consistency is. Yeah, that, no, that's a really interesting um, definition because um, I guess I really hadn't thought about it in that way. But yeah, it really is this idea. It's it's fascinating because in doing the research for it, uh, it it comes back to what philosophy is all about, which is how do we know something, right? It's knowledge, right? It's that that epistemological imperative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So can, can you give us a quick overview of the philosophy of Karl Popper? Because he's kind of the name that's associated with verisimilitude. I smile every time his name comes up because all I can think of is Mr. Popper's Penguins, which, <laughs> which, which is interestingly uh, taking a snippet from his life and waxing on uh, not very necessarily verisimilitudinously. Yeah, <laughs> which is a word. So, um, Popper was trying to. He went through a couple of phases with this, but he was essentially trying to establish, uh, because when he, he was writing and thinking, this was still a thing, uh, absolutism in truth or non-truth, and was suggesting, and this is going to sound topsy-turvy, but uh, was suggesting that the more content one has in 
building a theory, the less probable uh, where the theory is going will be. Hmm. And the less content and the more improbable, the more truthful it might be. I remember wrestling with that the first time I encountered it long ago, and I still wrestle with it. And I think it's one of the re- it didn't last. Right. It didn't survive the test of time, so to speak. But it was fascinating. And he was really the first person to uh, try to theorize about the idea of verisimilitude. Yeah. And, um, you know, he uh, he had some intellectual integrity, like, like you said, uh, later on. Um, the theory was sort of questioned and picked apart, and he said, "Oh yeah, well, why didn't I notice that in the first place?" Right? He wasn't he wasn't so uh, so proud of what he had done that he was just going to stick by it no matter what. Right? No, no, no um, not at all. And I think the thing to uh, with Popper is uh, I'm trying to find one of the quotations I wanted, to, but I'm, I'm fiddling around here. I think the thing about Popper is that he was encountering. And trying to give articulation to the places that the discussion can take us. For instance, if if you look at science or anything related that is theorizing about the world based on uh, epistemological data, and and you realize that over the course of of history on a mega scale, macro scale. Every theory is essentially not entirely right, mm. <laughs> and thus the scaffolding that we've talked about before, where we we think we're progressively going further toward the truth. But in, on the face of it, if, if Popper was looking at this as well: this failed, and the next one failed, and the next one failed, and the next one failed. So the history of philosophy and philosophy of science is a failure. And then said, "Well, no, but that's that's not." true because there is in fact a going closer to the truth like like what you said at the very beginning yeah yeah it's interesting um the example that always makes it pretty clear for me that i like to use was the idea of um epicycles in medieval uh cosmology and Mm -hmm. astronomy where um you know, all the way back, you know, for thousands of years, you know, since the beginning of humanity, right? People have been looking at the stars and then at some point they figure out, hey, some of these stars are moving in a, in a pattern, right? And, um, they start trying to figure it out and they, you know, they develop telescopes. They go, oh, those are planets. Oh, okay. Well, these planets must be orbiting something. So let's figure out what their orbital period is. <laughs> and it turns out that this is a, amazingly complex thing because obviously we know now planets revolve around the sun but rather than just the gravity of the sun interacting with the planet the gravity of all the other planets and the planet's moons all of these things are playing into that are tugging it in different ways as they go around so not having the the data you know or the even the mathematics to describe what these planets are doing um what they're finding is oh man it's really hard to predict how these things are moving in a circle so well you know what if we say that these things are sort of spinning in a smaller circle as they're orbiting that gets us a lot closer and uh they're like, well, that's still not right. So we'll add a couple more <laughs> little circles. Well, it's still not right. We'll add a couple more. And eventually, 
you have all of these planets spinning in all of these different circles as they orbit around. Well, if you look at it scientifically, right, or in, in terms of truth, um, they got a lot closer to describing how the planets go around in a circle by adding these epicycles, but it wasn't a true, it was false, right? So that sort of, that to me kind of encapsulates this um, concept of verisimilitude where it's like, all right, so if we can observe something or we know, you know, we have some sort of knowledge of how something's happening and then we try to describe it and we come up with a theory that's close and then it's proved wrong. And then we come up with another theory and it's closer, but it's also proved wrong. The fact is we're really not doing anything different even today in modern science, right? Me getting a doctorate, as I'm doing my my studies, um, you find out that, you know, there's very strict guidelines covering how you can write a research paper. And one of those guidelines is that you can never use the word proof, right? (laughs) You can never say this, you know, this proves that this thing is a, is a cause of this, you know, how how you want to say you can only disprove things. And that's built right into the mathematics of statistics and, 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 you know, analyzation in science. So if things can only be disproved, and if we're constantly disproving these things, um, you know, how can, is there an absolute truth? You know, how, or can one of these things that's false and another of these things be false? Can one be more true than the other if it's false by definition? It, it can be because it's predicated on the, the ancient notion that a number of current politicians seem to be quite willing to discard with prejudice is that we seek the truth. That's, I, I am unabashedly unembarrassed by the idea that that's what education was once about. And for some of us, it's still what education is about. But, but yes, you can have a statement that by itself is false and yet leads to truth. If I, if I say, uh, Perry is close to Paris, that's patently false. If I say Perry is closer to Paris than to a, a place in Vietnam, perhaps that isn't as false. And so there's a degree of specificity that can cause that truth. The, the, the term, and I know you've encountered it, is, is truth likeness. Yeah, yeah. One word, truth likeness. Mm-hmm. That's the other word for verisimilitude. And, and, and so if you make a, a, an authentically hearted attempt at finding the truth, you're invariably going to say false things, but then immediately want to revise them, recognizing their falseness, but looking ahead to, well, but how does that take us toward planetary movement or whatever, whatever yeah. it is that we're talking about? Yeah. So the word truth likeness, what that, that word in itself um, reminds me of the, the prefix pseudo, right? Hmm. Which always leads you into interesting spots. I remember one time I found a pseudo scorpion here. Um, really strange looking creature. Okay. Well, here's a a scorpion, but it doesn't have a tail. Right. 
And then that I really started digging into the taxonomy of the, the creature, right? Anything with pseudo in front of it, you know, you, it, it raises these questions about well, where did this thing come from and what sort of, how do you categorize it and how does it fall mm-hmm. into things? Mm-hmm. So if you think truth likeness, um, if you call it pseudo truth, that adds a whole different shade of meaning to that word and it leads you into some very dangerous territory right perhaps you know um obviously an example that everybody in the world is familiar with at this point is is covid right and so you know as as the, the pandemic went on for 2 years um you saw science constantly revising its positions on guidelines and you really saw two camps of people as this was taking place. There was some people that recognized that, you know, basically the scientists were working with a novel disease and that as they were gaining more information, they were having to revise their theories. They were finding out, oh, okay, well, the virus doesn't act in this way. So we need to change how far apart people are or what masking conditions they have or what sort of things are going on. And there's been a constant revision. And that is just a microcosm of the history of science. That's the way it's always been. No matter what, no matter what the subject of inquiry is, it, the science has never remained static. It's no. always developing and things are being falsified and new theories are being put forth. And like I just said, you can never claim that a new theory is true or that there's proof that it is conclusive. No. But you can operate within the theoretical construct until you come up with new information that falsifies that theory. Right. That, and this is and the, the falsification approach is uh, I would say is Popper's largest contribution. Right. So you have your one camp of people that are thinking that way. And and really you see that within Popper's own life, as we were talking about, right? He put forward a theory and other philosophers stepped forward and said, well, this really doesn't make sense. And he said, you know what? You're right. I wish I had seen that, which is a, a perfect example of him living out his, his own, his, his own his thoughts. His autobiography is worth a read. It's called, uh, just the title tells you exactly what we, uh, unint- Unended Quest. An intellectual autobiography. Yeah, that's perfect. And and and, I, and you know, I'm reviewing my notes for for today and, and thinking about that, I'm thinking, well, and 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 we were talking about the hero's journey, hmm. which is another word for a quest. Well, quests go on. The quest for the Holy Grail went on, and so I some seem like I'm diverging, but I think I'm going to bring it back to the <laughs> and. Or you can have a series of smaller quests that attempt to fulfill the larger one, but never quite get there. One of my favorite poems by Yeats was called Ulysses, which is also uh, the Odyssey, Odysseus, right? And Odysseus uh, goes through, what, 20, 40, 20 years, 20 years of, of seeking falling down, making mistakes, insulting the gods, getting punished for it, all to get back home. He gets back home. He he essentially devastates all the people who have been trying to uh, marry his wife. He gets reunited with his adult son, who's been out there looking for him. And what does he turn around and do? Goes back out. And, 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 and this these lines by uh, Tennyson, I am part of all that I have met. 
Yet all experience is an arch, where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades. Hmm. No matter how much you've accomplished, you cannot catch up with the untraveled world that continues to move on. And you can go through, try to go through the gate, but even if you get partway through the gate, you're not going to get all the way through. Yeah. And so I think that's what Popper was living. And, and I think that's why uh, some of his approach was honorable with the falsification idea. Yeah. Yeah. The hero's journey. I mean, that really does does play into it, right? It's it, The quest for science is very similar. And speaking of, of verisimilitude in, in the more modern sense, like you talked about at the beginning, video game uh, evolution has really been a good example of this, right? Back um, in the day, in, in the, the beginning of video games, is essentially emulating um, physical games, right? Like, oh, you're playing ping pong, or you're playing golf, or you're doing something like this. Yeah. You know, as computer capabilities and graphics <laughs> capabilities increased, um, you started to develop these linear stories in video games that really um, sort of replicated the hero's journey in other media like television and books, where all right, you start out and you you at the beginning, and then you follow this linear quest, and the game keeps you on this path and and whatnot. And then you know, fifteen years ago or so, as again, computer capabilities are increasing more, graphics capabilities are becoming more realistic, these sorts of things. Um, games started to become what they call open world, right? Which is where the game no longer keeps you on this path. There's no invisible walls saying that you can't run into this forest or whatever. You can go anywhere, right? Um, and increasingly, you can do anything. You know, you can you can just you could live on a farm, and you know, you can plant vegetables and harvest them and do all these mundane things, right? And they add in side quests, right? So instead of having a main quest and having these levels that you complete in order to finish the main story. In addition to that, they have these little quests that you go off and do that have no impact on the main arc of the character. And there was one game that got so good at doing this, uh, well, series of games, The Elder Scrolls, right? Um, Morrowind, uh, Oblivion, Skyrim, right? Where um, there's a large group of people with these games that have never done the main (laughs) storyline. They've started the game and then... There are so many things that just sort of grab your attention off the bat and you start going down these rabbit holes. And sometimes these side quests are even made up of multiple parts, you know, that have their so own story. you forget story. the original quest. Right. And so you just end up in this endless cycle of doing these different things. And that really is art imitating life, right? Because we talked with the hero's journey about how in real life, there, there's very rarely this circular thing. It's not a closed loop, right? right? One journey leads into another. There's other journeys that are starting at different points of it. And these, and that's the way life works. And increasingly, um, you know, entertainment in, in the forms of video games or, you know, virtual reality and these sorts of things are starting to emulate that in a way. They are. Now, this is interesting. You, you were talking about the, the games. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking to, you know, Aristotle was establishing a set of um, rules, essentially, which, of course, have been broken, uh, that mimesis requires an strict adherence to the real. So a play is not supposed to 
accommodate any more than the time period that the play actually takes. Hmm. Two hours from the day of a character or whatever it happens to be. That's so limiting that, uh, I mean, there, there have been many fine works created with that, but, but, but artists started to push back. I think verisimilitude is in the idea of, well, you, you write fantasy. I love fantasy and science fiction. But in any literature, verisimilitude means that, uh, in part, that you are <clears throat> not violating the implied rules of the of the world that you have created. So there shouldn't be moments when a reader who might be accepting that there are 20 moons orbiting the world, and perhaps the orbital dynamics are presented if it's science fiction. But but then one of the moons falls on the world and it still survives. And you say, nope. Uh, even uh, and and so here's a really ridiculously kitschy example, but it's kind of I kind of found it funny. Uh, there was uh, this whole series of Transformer movies, so we already know what level I'm talking about. Right. Because, I, but I went, I you know, I said, okay, fine. We got to one, and I don't remember the name. Uh, I've gone with my son to enjoy it, and. <laughs> And Leonard Nimoy is voicing this older character who's a, an alien, a metallic transformer that has a metallic beard. <laughs> and I'm saying, um, this is really taking me out of, out of the world. And then the transformer world somehow gets placed in the, uh, close to the earth, um, touching its atmosphere. And I'm sitting there laughing and, and saying, where's the wind? Where are the earthquakes? Where are they? Right. And so that was not verisimilitudinous. Right. Now, it, 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 it was up to a point. You say, okay, I'm going to accept that these metallic creatures um, can be hurt. I'm going to accept that sometimes they can transform into machines and back into what they are. I'm sitting here. I paid the ticket. I'll accept that. But even within that, we know that we're in a world that we've accepted. We know it's not real, but but the writer or the director or the scriptwriter, whatever genre you're talking about, just throw something in and you say no. So we've hit that wall of the verisimilitudinous. Right, yeah. There's there's an inability to suspend disbelief. So I, I guess, has the question of verisimilitude... I think we can say it's always existed, um, but how do you think it's evolved as um, bodies of evidence have evolved as well? So as science and as art have developed, are there certain ways that our conception of verisimilitude has changed over time or do you I think th we're still asking the same question? I think we're – well, we're asking some of the same questions but not expecting mm, – necessarily the same result uh, i think that the the largest shift was very recent and 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 that is within the past 60 or 70 years when pretty much everyone it wasn't just the quantum physicists it was how that all spun into every other discipline realized as and you've been alluding to this and re referring to this that there that there isn't an absolute 
unchangeable, static, ultimate truth. That doesn't mean there's not truth, <laughs> but to try to uh, to try to reach that is uh, counter to everything we have come to know. So it's sort of a meta thing where a, a verisimilitude is transferred verisimilitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um it's pretty it is interesting how um like you said since the middle of the the 20th century there um there's just been a lot of developments that um essentially broke our worldview, right? Their Newtonian mechanics had been around for so long mm-hmm. and um our inability to you know access the early um you know, early observations of the universe, our inability to access um, the information on how our own brains work. All of these things um, led us to develop a pretty stable worldview. And like you said, that was something that that had always existed throughout time, but there had been these big changes. Newton obviously shook a lot of things up, mm-hmm. um, but then things settled back down. You know, there was... A reality was shattered, but another reality was Emerged. created. Yes. What happened after, not even so much after Einstein, but with with quantum mechanics, um, and then with the you know the, the adoption of fMRI to look at um, the human brain and, and probe these questions of consciousness, and the development of, of powerful space telescopes to look back, you know, and in, into the in time essentially right, yeah. in, into time. Um, what happened is. The reality, the the Newtonian reality that we had settled into was shattered, but there wasn't another reality that was readily available to stand in as a new foundation or settlement Mm -hmm. on which everybody could grasp onto. Instead, everything was sort of thrown into this uncertainty of what if there isn't just one reality what if there isn't just one truth what if you know these things and that really continues to this day and as science marches on and 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 even now we're starting to grasp um you know how some quantum computing works and and you know the james webb space telescope will let us see to the beginning of time and all these things i don't think that a new stable view of reality is going to necessarily appear out of this advance in science if anything i think it's going to get a little bit more messy i i i think so too a lot of things are getting more messy and and uh, yeah so i think that that is for me as a lay person really uh, is the biggest tangible change Uh, arguing about the uh, whether verisimilitude leads us into nihilism or uh, leads us into undue optimism. That that was the debate across a couple hundred years previously. But no, the the fact that we've that which which is really desperately important to uh, grasp onto when you when you look at that and say, well, okay, so there are many truths. Well. There are many things that feel like truths or that, that evidentiary material will lead us to, but that doesn't, that doesn't al- allow us 
or shouldn't allow us to forego our responsibility to look at the connection between data and what the data seem to say. It, it, it doesn't mean, oh, we just give up, everything's real, it's all relative. Mm. Which is where I think a lot of people are just going, oh, well, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. No, there, there are still, there's still stuff. Um, here's an example. I, I read it this morning and, and it's a, a topic you and I, uh, in, uh, deeply committed to in different ways, which is education. There is a new education training in Florida for history teachers that, uh, they're calling it a boot camp and for the changing the curriculum and the curriculum, um, requires teachers to say, among other things, that the United States Constitution never established a uh, a strong line between church and state. Now, that's patently false, and one can look in the Constitution and see it. And so when when that kind of statement gets made and people are supposed to ideologically accept it, we're running straight away from any possibility of truth. And, and so that, that falseness can be uh, identified, clarified, removed. <laughs> let's, let's, let's look at the text. Let's get closer to reality again. So I, I think we have a really, more now than ever, responsibility to um, factuality at the same time as saying, no, it's not going to lead us to an ultimate truth, but there's still truth in facts. Yeah. yeah. In the knowledge. Yeah. You, you, you sort of answered my next question before I even asked it, which was what gives a theory a greater degree of verisimilitude? Isn't it right? fun that we know each other well enough? <laughs> <to each other? laughs> so that was my next one was what gives a theory a greater degree of verisimilitude? Um, and so w- w- we'll go a little bit deeper. Um, Let's let's go back to uh, say my COVID example, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I mentioned yeah. the first group of people, um, mm-hmm. which are are sort of with with the scientists who mm-hmm. say, "Listen, you know, we're going to put forward this theory with the understanding that um, things are going to change, right? Our knowledge of the virus is going to change. The virus itself is going to change. Things are going to happen that are going to relegate our current knowledge as obsolete or even false." based off of the unknown unknowns, right? Um, And some people are willing to accept that uncertainty as long as it's within the framework of science and continue forward. There's a second group of people, right, who um, say the scientists don't know what they're talking about. Technically, in some regard, they're not wrong, right? (laughs) Because... Like we just said, the scientists, there are unknown unknowns. Um, and then there are things that are going to change um, in multiple areas that are going to render things false or obsolete. Um, but then if you disregard what, you know, science, then the route that that goes, how you acquire knowledge um, is going to lead you in a very different direction. Yes, yes. So I guess. If with that question, what gives a theory a greater degree of verisimilitude? Um, is it really just getting close to the truth? Does it matter how you get there? Let's say it's getting closer to the truth. It doesn't matter how you get there. Well, it, 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 it yes. <laughs> it, if you stumble on it, okay. I mean, it, it's not that, it's not that. Our friend Mandalore, this is the way. Well, okay, well, there are a lot of ways to, to get toward the, the truth. 
But if you're committed to that particular way, then you're going to practice the principles of that. But that implies principles. That implies a structure. It implies a logic and a rationality. So to get anywhere, uh, in art even, yes, you have inspiration. You have those epiphanic moments of boom and a light bulb, whatever you know, we want to call it. But there's still a rational approach to how you use your materials to create something. Mm. Um, in history, you, you, you examine the evidence. You don't throw the evidence out unless you find that, oh, the Constitution is a fake. It really wasn't written this way. We don't have the original Constitution. I full well expect somebody to start saying that. Right. I full well expect that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it dropped through the wormhole, and this is an alternate universe's United States Constitution, and blah, blah, blah. But So it doesn't necessarily matter the way, it's the how. Yeah. Yeah, it was. that was an interesting thing when I started my doctoral studies looking at um, quantitative research methods. Um, they, they listed several ways that people come to know things. Um, and the, the first one's superstition, which is essentially just, um, it's almost luck, right? Or um, guessing, right? So you have pretty much, you know, you can be wrong as often as you can be right, but there's no real rationality behind it. Then there's intuition where, um, you know, again, you aren't using any sort of scientific principles um, but there might be some sort of internal rationalization that puts you in a right direction, but you still are, there's a very good chance you're going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Then there's observation, right? You can, you can watch how things unfold and you can use rationality to sort of infer other things. And that's sort of the first step in a scientific approach. Then you have, um, you know, an actual interview process, right? You're actually interacting with things and then using data to determine how they work. Then after that, there's an experimental approach where you're actually isolating things and determining how they interact to, to inform some sort of causal, um, some sort of causal relationship. So that was, that was interesting to me because it was it, the way the textbook presented it, right? Was that, you know, you can have a superstition um, and be right. You know, and, and you can probably see that happening throughout history. You know, maybe somebody, oh, well, if you take, you know, if you do this sort of thing when you get sick, then you'll be better. And then you find out down the road, oh, actually, there were things that went into it, but they were just lucky. Yeah. Or it could be intuitive, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, my my gut says that if I do this, I'm going to be right because I have some experience in the past with this and, and it takes you down the right road. You could still be wrong, right? And you can observe and do these things. So verisimilitude, right? The the truth likeness. Um, again, the, it's that idea of, you know, what is getting you closest to. Right. What's the process? Right. What, right. How the, it's the how. The, and so with our COVID example, right? So if you have the people that you have the camp that is with the scientist and then you have the other camp that says, well, you know, if you do this crazy thing, it gets rid of COVID or, you know, COVID's actually a hoax or whatever. Right. And they're gaining knowledge through some of these lower level things, superstition or intuition, or maybe even a, a very rudimentary observation that isn't, doesn't have any regimented data collection, right? Um, 
Well, it's pretty obvious if you look at the statistics and the numbers and the hospitalizations and the deaths, um, who has a greater degree of verisimilitude in their theory, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> As, mm-hmm. But um, it's taken a couple of years for that to build up the body of data and the body of evidence to present this. Right. Um, and that, I mean, it really, it's just a microcosm, right, of of science in, in action, right? And that's it the is. difficult part of living in history, right? Instead of looking back on history, living in a context, right, is that in the moment, um, science is working on several suppositions that are going to change, right? And But if you trust the process that's laid out in in how we gather knowledge, right? How we get closer to truth. Yes. Um, as the body of evidence builds up and the data builds up, we usually see it borne out as being verisimilitudinous. <laughs> well said. Well said. You know, I, there's a... If this is leading us away from where you wanted to go, then you just tell me. But there, I, I'm thinking very much from the art view again, right, at the moment. There has been uh, a marvelous festival, um, New York State Puppet Festival, going on in Perry, uh, where we are at the moment. And and here are people from uh, fifth generation and his son, sixth generation puppeteers, who performed last night at an American uh, puppeteer who's extremely well-known in his coterie of people, his team. The last time they did the show that is in the Perry High School um, was in Paris, just before the pandemic. And now it's in this little town of 3,500 people, uh, more cows than people kind of place. Yeah. All right. And, this, and, and these puppeteers, not all like the Muppets. The Muppets are pretty amazing, but it's not this. It's, there's Bunraku puppetry. Um, there, uh, shadow puppetry, uh, and, and the uh, elaborate nature of telling a story or how it can be elaborated. You see in the traditional puppetry of the kind we were looking at last night, three people sometimes manipulating one puppet and they're in blacks or in veils or in various things to de-emphasize them but sometimes you see their faces and the puppeteer's face is focused on the puppet and the puppeteer's face sometimes reflects all the moods that are going on in the puppet and that's to take us as the audience to reflect us right off that puppeteer and into that being and sometimes you're so caught up with the puppet that you accept that that this story is happening to these these are beings. At the same time that you see the shadows of the people moving them. It's an amazing process. It's a transformative process, and it very much holds to the, what we've been talking about today. It's truth-likeness, moment-to-moment-to-moment. Hmm. <laughs> uh, moment to moment. Yeah. Yeah, and some, if you see, like if you see a really good ventriloquist, it does the same thing, right? Hmm. Because if if they do a good enough to job disguising their mouth movements and they have a you know a varied enough vocal pattern, you really start to believe that this ventriloquist dummy is a separate entity, right? It's very very strange, right? Kids, and not just kids, adults. I I I, I guarantee you, you have had this experience. Well, I, I would like to. I can't quite. It's truth likeness, but 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 
you you go somewhere and somebody pulls out a puppet and starts talking to you, your attention goes to the puppet. Mm. Even if the person's just vocal, but, hi, my name is, <laughs> and you're watching the puppet. You right. say, yeah, tell me more about yourself. <laughs> there, there is something, uh, whether it's spiritual, magical, of psychological, all of it braided together going on that we will accept that and know at the same time that it is an imitation of life. Yeah. And what's always fascinating to me is how little humans need to get to that point. Like think about, think about reading critically, right? You have, here's an, an animal that picks up an inanimate object and stares at it for minutes or hours at a time. No movement, nothing happening. But inside your head, there's this rich experience, right? Mm-hmm. But if you if you if you isolate that, right? If we if we just say, all right, you know that there is, we, you, you take yourself completely out of the human perspective and you just look at it from the outside. You go, this is insane <laughs> this, this what you're doing yeah. is what you're doing yeah. is not um not directly contributing to your survival or your homeostasis or or anything you're just you're just sitting there completely still right and so that that's one of those like like I was talking about just recently you know there's been several areas where um as science has progressed the idea of verisimilitude is undergoing a sort of change away from this ultimate truth um, to the identification that their truth can be found in several different ways within a same discipline. Um, and this, I mean, this applies to that the fMRI and the study of consciousness and, and the study of, um, you know, the, this, this inner experience. Yeah. Um and and thinking how how this developed and and what its utility is, right? <laughs> well, there's utility again. <laughs> so should how should we or or should we delineate between truth and accuracy when talking about verisimilitude? That's an interesting question. Well, if if you're taking again the idea of it being an evocation of an iteration of some elements of reality, then uh, accuracy as in the consistency of a a character uh, in in the arts uh, would, would be required. So if a character behaves in a certain way and then just suddenly starts to do something completely differently and there's no causal causal analysis, there's no evidentiary of why, then you sort of say, nope, the writer was being inconsistent. Even though human beings can be inconsistent all the time, there's a consistency in that. <laughs> we, we, we have character. So accuracy, in, and in the logical sense, uh, accuracy would be the motive, the modal element uh, to attempt to get to the verisimilitude. 
I, I may say false things, but if I'm trying to get established, I'm, I'm whacking away at the woods, so to speak. I've got to find a path. All right. So, so I, uh, I say that, uh, there, well, uh, in the Stanford, uh, encyclopedia of philosophy, there's wonderful extended discussion about this in terms of planets. Well, we say there are eight planets. Yeah. But when I was a kid, there were nine planets. Somebody right. gets all upset about that, right? Well, yeah, but then the definition of planet altered to make it more accurate. And that more accurate alteration leads us to the eight planets. But if I were to say, well, there, there might be 200 planets, uh, out in beyond the, or in the Oort cloud and, and someone else says there are no planets out in the Oort cloud. The might be 200 planets is closer to possible accuracy than the absolute declaration there are none. Yeah. Yeah, this question, it is an interesting one. Sometimes I, sometimes I surprise myself. But yeah, the, this idea of accuracy versus truth. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, you know, it's hard to, think about it scientifically, but I think it's easy to think about it artistically, right? Um, when I think about music, um, you know, over the past 20 years or so, there's been um, a large development in um, tools that help you um, fix mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, an auto-tune, so that your your voice is always hitting the right pitch, or a quantizer, so that your drum beats are always on time, these sorts of things, right? And so, when you apply them to an audio production, um, not that there's anything wrong with with using them, but if you overuse them, right, you end up with this very sterile sounding recording. Mm-hmm. And for all intents and purposes, that recording is very accurate, but it's not very truthful, right? Yes, yes. it's meticulously accurate, attempting to be perfect, which renders it less truth-like. And you see this or in video games, right? Um, sure, graphics are, are increasing, right? You come up with something that is much more accurate in terms of being immersive from a sensory viewpoint. But if the storytelling or the mechanics or the other things that that bring you into it because it appeals to the truth of what it means to be human are absent, then all that accuracy doesn't really make a good video game, right? What is it called? The uncanny valley? Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. so the AI. But if the uncanny valley is what takes your attention, then you're missing what the attempt is in the in the first place. Right. Yeah, it's Star Wars robots, right? So you have this R2-D2, right? He doesn't have any characteristics that are um, that that screams sentience, right? Yet viewers have always had this connection, an emotional connection or some sort of intellectual belief that they can interpret the beeps and boops and the actions and stuff. (laughs) Well, you know, you might have, whereas you have a C-3PO that is very humanoid and speaks, you know, a human language and stuff. um, But the connection might not be there. You know, the accuracy of, of a, of, a robotic representation of humanity versus the truthfulness of a robotic representation of humanity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You see R2-D2 and you have this emotional connection and you see the things that he does and it makes you realize that is what 
I as a human would do in this situation. Then you see C-3PO bumbling around and, you know, trying to talk people out of doing the right thing. And you go, well, this is not what a human would do, but he looks and speaks like a human would, right? So I think with art, it is it is sort of easy to draw that line, not, not necessarily draw the line, but look on that spectrum and say, okay, well, something can be accurate, but not necessarily truthful or vice versa. Well, with science and history, it requires more care. Yeah. It requires yeah. an, art requires an investment too, in the sense of, I'm going to consider this. I'm going to let it, ex- ex- I'm going to experience this. Or you can just look at it and say, nah, that's not my kind of art because it doesn't look real and walk away. Hmm. But, but if you're, if you, if you are serious, you will, and vulnerable, you will have an experience with that art. It might not be a great experience. It might be a life changing experience. But with, with more uh, knowledge based in, or intellectually polished or focused, perhaps things like science and history, then it requires that investment of thinking, not just reacting. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the reason that that gets real messy, right, is because with art, um, the humanity is put into it in the beginning stages and then the product of it is not human right it's human inspired but it is not human so it's easy then to look at a non-human thing and try to determine accuracy or truth to humanity with science and with history these are human things these are things that humans participated in these are things that humans actively are part of and so as a result that it's that again we'll bring in that word pseudo right (laughs) um it's easy if i if i create a scorpion out of wood right it's easy to say well that's not a true scorpion but if you see an actual pseudo scorpion it's harder to say well is that a scorpion or is it a different kind of arachnid or what is this thing right I think that there's something about the immersion factor that that causes us to have, like you said, it requires more critical thinking. Right? It does because also you can you can back away just a, a, a touch from it and say, well, in calling this a pseudoscorpion, what am I allowing myself to miss? Hmm. Is it scorpion like only in visual or, or is it, in, and I don't know what a pseudoscorpion is, so I got to go home and look this up now too, <laughs> but, but just on the surface of it, by giving it a name, you are inviting, and we all, we, we do this, we invite uh, missing what else might be there. Yeah, there's the categorization that causes it causes issues because mm-hmm. <laughs> much like science, right? Any categorization is likely um, either false or not taking into account information that's not available or isn't aware of the unknown unknowns. So categories shift and that makes people very upset. <laughs> they don't want categories to shift. People don't about- want change. People, I mean, people want change seemingly and that's, but when you, when you look at the aggregate of humanity, 
it's it, historically there's there's a lot of change that many people do want, but the push of culture is always no, no, keep it. <laughs> yeah, and, and so we have to fight against this constantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you think about it from like a personal standpoint, right? You have truth and the antithesis of, of that falsehood, right? If you think about getting caught telling a lie, right? It's pretty easy to determine if somebody's lying to you, right? Because all you have to do is just ask a few questions about the person's narrative, right? And if somebody's telling the truth, they'll have the answers and the answers will all make sense. If they're telling a lie, they might have to think about constructing the story because it didn't actually happen or the parts of the story that they just come out with might not all add up. You can extrapolate this on a macro scale to conspiracy theories, right? Yes. You you can look at them and say, yes. okay, well, you might have an outcome here. Um, the outcome might be something that, that makes people much more comfortable. Um, but do the steps of the narrative require a very specific, delicate way of developing in order for this to be true? Or do the steps of the narrative not make cohesive sense when put together? And that's that's the essentially the that, that's, that's the that's sum of it, right? It is, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the process of science is to start out with evidence and draw a conclusion that you know is going to change as things progress. Um, whereas uh, anything else starts with the conclusion and tries to pick up the steps or the things that point to it in retrospect, and and then be uh, precious and twee and coy, uh, like something like QAnon. Mm. Oh, I've been silent for two years. Now Q will speak again. No, thank you. <laughs> Go back to your dormancy. We don't need it. <laughs> because, oh, well, if you got something to say, say it. No, I'm going to offer it in riddles because you really don't have anything to say. When you, but you, yeah. It is. A, it's, it's, a, it's a carnival barker thing. <laughs> right. And, and that's what a lot of conspiracy theory is. Now, I loved the X-Files. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is I loved it because it was just good storytelling. Sometimes, but you know, there was never a oh, this is the way it really is. No, <laughs> no, no, I had no idea in the 90s to join the X Files, <laughs> but I'd be later on in my life in a time where everyone believes they don't just want to believe, they do, <laughs> right? Right, <laughs> and there's a, there's a presentation thing, right? I mean, if you if you're encountering this on TV, um. Again, that's a that's an art form. So it's yes. easy to delineate that from reality and say, okay, well, this is a story that's being told. The internet is a much murkier um, medium. Oh, yeah. Where, sure, it's part art. There's definitely people creating art on the internet. But there's also genuine human interactions that are happening. And some people blur the lines between the two and are able to lead people astray legitimately because it's not a television show that's being presented to them that they can easily decipher as being real or false. It's a person on the internet, you know, they believe that they're interacting with somebody who is telling a story, right? Hmm. And rather than entering into the critical thinking process of, of investigating <laughs> this person's credentials or whether the story makes sense or whatever, um, you're getting sucked in by by that medium. You know, you just come to expect, okay, well, I read things on the internet all the time and I assume that they're true. Well, that's a very dangerous thing to do. It is. 
And it also plays to what we know about confirmation bias, which can lead us way away from verisimilitude <laughs> as, as well. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. So is there such a thing as ultimate truth or is truth on a spectrum of accuracy? I think that we've, we've pretty much talked about this. Yeah, I think truth for me at this stage, the, the truth is on a spectrum of accuracy. And if you're talking about a great, big, large truth, but I think there are plentiful demonstrable truths easily gotten to through rationality and factuality every single breathing moment. Mm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily lead, it doesn't it lead us to a, this ultimate truth. But we don't spend all of our days every single moment thinking about an ultimate truth either. I think it's more, I think one trains oneself in the daily interactions, the daily, even interacting with text, whatever it is, the daily thought of you, you walk, take a walk and you notice what's going on around you in your walk. Um, and if you, if you're honest with yourself and you say, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but sometimes my, my granddaughter would, hear a noise and say, what's that? Now, the first the first inclination is to be the answer giver, right? Well, mm -hmm. well, that was, no, I didn't know quite what it was. And so I had to say, well, that might have been, and I had three different things in mind. Well, do you know which it is? I, I really don't. I think that's so important to say to anybody, but especially to a child. Right. Now, we have things we don't know this moment, and we might be able to figure it out. Uh, we can't answer everything. Right. That's the important part, right? There's, there's things you can't figure out, and some of them you will be able to figure out. But some of them are always going to be mysteries, and that's philosophy. It is. <laughs> philosophy is, I mean, it's difficult because it's, it's epicycles, right? Well, you know, it doesn't matter how much we learn. You know, we, we use the things that we learn. We use the data. We use the processes, all the new insights. Mm -hmm. um, but with the understanding that we're never going to know, we're only going to get closer to knowing. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of the fascinating part. That, that, and that's enough for me. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's that, that uncertainty. Um, I, I think for some people it 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 inspires them and it drives them on and, and for some people it's it's unsettling you know and I think that, that kind of determines sure. how how you approach um, the way you gather knowledge. Sure, and, and that's not knowing some things you would rather like to know is is can be uh, medically can be troubling, unsettling, um, drawing your thought down all kinds of rabbit holes. You know, and so you seek facts and sometimes you don't get them because the doctors don't necessarily know either. And I'm just trying to grasping at different fields to just say this is verisimilitude is, is, is a, a, a thing about reality TV. It's not. Right. It, and, and why? Because it's the same. It goes back to the scientific principle. When something is observed, it changes the dynamic of that thing. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, even if they weren't staged, right? There's no way that these people that are being observed by cameras that know they're going to, to be on TV are going to act the way that they right. would if they weren't observed. You know? Walk into a woods and notice the difference in the sounds. Right. 
And you can say, well, I'm just out having a nice walk in the woods. Yes, but you are affecting the life around you mm. just by taking a step and another step and another step. And, and so you, you, you can't know. Did I, did my step into the woods drive a deer to run down through the woodlot and thus out across the road and a car hit it, giving a very bad day to the person who owned the car because I stepped in the woods? You know, I, I don't think we have to linger over that and, and feel responsible for everything that happens in the world. But I think it should give us a kind of humility to say, well, you know, I may be having effects that I didn't necessarily intend. Right. We all have effects that we that we don't intend, and we all have effects that we don't know that we have. Mm-hmm. And like I said, that can be unsettling to some people. And and but that's that's part of life. It's part of the the universe that we live in. Yes. All right, that was a fun one. Until next time, keep. Going.